Welcome to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. At Village, we seek to be shaped by the life of Christ, to practice authentic friendship, and serve the world. You're invited to join us at either our Mission Campus or our Antioch Campus. For now, we hope you hear a word for your own life in this sermon. Our reading today is from Judges, chapter 6, verses 36 through 40, and chapter 7, verses 2 through 7. And you may find this on page 221 in your pew Bible. But first, let us pray. Gracious God, you have called us to be your people and claimed us as your own. Come to us now in this scripture that we would hear your voice and be reminded of all that you hope and dream for us and for this world. Amen. This is from chapter 6, the sign of the fleece. Then Gideon said to God, In order to see whether you will deliver Israel by my hands, as you have said, I'm going to lay a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you have said. And so it was. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, He wrung enough dew from the fleece to to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not let your anger burn against me. Let me speak one more time. Let me please make trial with the fleece just once more. Let it be dry only on the fleece, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, and on the ground there was dew. Now from chapter 7, Gideon surprises and routs the Midianites. The Lord said to Gideon, The troops with you are too many for me to give Midianites into your hand. Israel would only take credit away from me, saying, My own hand has delivered me. Now, therefore, proclaim this in the hearing of the troops. Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home. Thus Gideon sifted them out. Twenty-two thousand returned, and ten thousand remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The troops are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them out for you there. When I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. And when I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the troops down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, All those who lap the water with their tongues as dogs lap, you shall put to one side. All those who kneel down to drink, putting their hands to their mouths, you shall put to the other side. The number of those that lapped was 300, but all the rest of the troops knelt down to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 that lapped, I will deliver you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others go to their homes. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. 
So I'll be honest, uh, climbing Algonquin Peak was not my best or uh, really even a good idea. See, I made, I made plans to leave campus during reading week. It was a week without classes. It was the fall semester of my first year of seminary in New Jersey. I, I love the outdoors, and I love to camp and to hike, and so I had brought all of my camping gear to campus with me, and I decided that I would use that reading week to climb Algonquin Peak, the second tallest peak in the state of New York. Now, surprisingly, no one else seemed to be planning to go anywhere during reading week. That should have been my first clue. Despite my invitation, no one seemed interested in taking this fun little hike with someone that they had met only a couple weeks ago. That is all except for my friend Aaron, another new seminary student whose skill at hiking and camping I knew nothing about. But I figured company's always good. What could go wrong? If you do a very brief search online, you will find this description of Algonquin basically from the first search result. And I quote, This hike has some great technical areas where you are on your hands and knees grabbing tree roots, etc., as you climb, you will come to a great waterfall providing a good place to stop and take a small break before you really start to climb. <laughs> the second half of the climb provides some fun scrambling sections where you need to watch your footing and may need a helping hand every once in a while. From here, you will find another scrambling section where you may need to get on your hands and knees to get up. The angle of the rock is so steep that if you are doing this hike in the early morning or when there is ice, you may, may, uh, want to have spikes because of the ice buildup on these rocks. I did zero web searches before this trip. So we had no spikes for ice that we did not anticipate. We were totally unprepared to be on our hands and knees grabbing at tree roots, etc., to haul ourselves upward, all, mind you, while carrying 40-pound backpacks because we would be camping in tents on the other side. We were both, to say the least, a little spooked at the very real possibility that we were in over our heads. So when we hit the summit of the peak, it was getting dark much later than when we had planned to be there, and that meant that we would descend on the other side in the dark. Erin had borrowed a pair of hiking pants from a friend, a friend who was taller than she is, and they were so long, she had rolled them up, but on the hike down, they kept being unrolled, and she was tripping on them. Ten minutes into the descent, the batteries on her flashlight died. And I, for my part, quietly went into freak-out mode. I kept thinking to myself, this is how people take a bad step and break something. This is how people get on the news because they get hurt and they need to get rescued. And that was in my head, but what I said was nothing. 
And so it was after 10 o'clock at night when we reached the camping area. We were exhausted, and all we knew is that we needed to look for signs that had a picture of a tent on them that would show us where we were allowed to set up our tents for the night. But it was pitch black, and we had one flashlight. And so after 30 minutes, when we hadn't seen a sign, we started to notice something else, that on the trees there were claw marks. It's evidence that bears love this area. We gave up and just picked a flat spot, set up our tents, called it a day. The next morning, I I crawled out of my tent, and I turned to look at it. And on the tree right above it was a sign with a picture of a tent and an arrow pointing down right where we were. We made it out of the woods safely, thankfully. I can report that Aaron is now happily a chaplain up in the Chicago area. The rest of the trip went better. When I look back, there were just a lot of signs along the way that I just missed. When I got back to campus at the end of the week, it was immediately apparent suddenly that I did really have a lot of work that I needed to get done and that that knowledge was apparent to everyone else who had told me, no, they will not go with me. I should have asked Erin a little bit more about her experience with camping in the backcountry, especially when she started borrowing equipment from our friends. I should have tried looking up uh, just once when looking for those tent signs on that first night. And I should have looked at the internet at all before we left for the trip. Sometimes signs in our lives are very clear later, but at the time we miss them. Gideon, when we meet Gideon, Gideon has spent a lifetime failing to see or to hear God's signs to him. It's possible, and maybe a little more judgmental than is fair to Gideon, but it's possible that he wasn't even looking for them. And so it isn't a surprise that much of the story of Gideon really is about his process of learning to see, of learning to trust, asking God for a sign, and then another, and then another, because in reality, seeing signs isn't easy, especially if you don't have practice at it. I mean, have you ever really thought about the process of looking at a sign? Let, let's take, for example, any one of us driving down the road. You, first of all, you need to be looking, looking for a sign. You have to know to look for it, to see it. And if, like me, sometimes you, you know even when you look for it, you miss it. You actually have to see the sign that you're looking for. And even then, once you are looking for it, and even once you see it, you have to correctly interpret what the sign is trying to communicate for you to do. And even after that, you have the wonderful decision, the decision on whether or not you will do what that street sign is telling you to do. That's a lot of steps. And I don't think Gideon knew how to do that when his journey started, so he keeps asking He keeps asking for one sign and then another sign and another sign so he can practice the process of seeing them. He can practice the process of sussing out what it is God would have him do. And so sometimes when in my life when I get frustrated with what I think is God's lack of presence, it might actually be that I need to ask myself if I'm just missing or ignoring the signs that God is putting out there for me. 
Because there are times in my life when, when all I want to know, all I want to know is where I'm supposed to set up my tent, God. I, I just want to know. I, I'm looking and I'm looking and, and I'm caught up in my own life and my own patterns and my own fears. And I'm, God, I'm just so busy. So what if I'm missing it? What if I'm missing what God is calling me to do because I'm down here in this wine press and my head is down and I'm just working and I'm working and I'm working and I'm not really getting anywhere and if I looked, if I looked, what would I see? If I looked and I, and I saw, what would it mean that I have to do? Because maybe those signs are out there, and when there's a sign, it asks me to do something, and I don't know if I'm going to like what it means. Because maybe, maybe it's a sign. It's a sign that calls for action in our culture when racism has crept back into prominence, and I need to do something. Maybe it's a sign that calls for action when God's children are more likely to get shot and imprisoned in disproportionate numbers depending on the color of their skin, and I need to do something. Maybe it's a sign that calls for action when we try to love our neighbors as ourselves but end up building walls to keep them out, and I need to do something. Maybe it's a sign that calls for action when we make decisions that value the freedom of owning a gun over the freedom from our children being shot by them, and I need to do something. Maybe it's a sign that calls for action when we dismiss the claims of sexually abused women and persons rather than face the possibility that those in positions of power might abuse those positions of power. Maybe it's a sign that calls for action when people in one place have too many resources and those in another have too few, and I need to do something. And another one, and another one, and another one, and how many, how many does it take before I see a sign for what it is, and I trust, I trust that there is a need for a response from faithful people to stand against those who are oppressed, no matter who and no matter where those oppressed are. So Gideon gets there. He gets there, and he lives in this country that's being occupied by an oppressive force, and eventually he says, maybe this is up to me to do it, and he gets that an army together, right? You do the math, 32,000 people he gathers together. He gathers them together, and even then he's still learning how all of this works. He's still learning to trust God's math, and so he goes to God and he says, God, I've gathered these 32,000, but I cannot fight yet because I am worried I do not have enough. And God, for God's part, God says, well, that's weird, Gideon, because I was thinking you have too much. So if anyone's afraid, ask them and, and let them go home. And 32,000 becomes 10,000. And if Gideon was worried about that, well, he's got more worry to come because God says, I still think you have too many. Anyone who drinks from that river with cupped hands, I want you to keep them. Send everyone else home. And from 32,000, he goes to 10. And from 10, he now goes to 300. You're prone to doing the math like I am. 300 is slightly less than 1% of 32,000. Gideon thought he didn't have enough to begin with, and now he's got less than 1%. And that's the moment, probably to Gideon's chagrin, when God says, all right, let's get to work. Do you ever wonder if God gets frustrated with you? I'm pretty sure I, I frustrate God on a regular basis. I know God's grace and God's love and God's mercy is deep and is wide and it is always embracing me, but I am sure I frustrate the heck out of God as often as I really can. 
And I wonder, I wonder in those moments, how many times, how many times God will patiently tell me over and over and over again. And the same thing I'm sure he tells to every single one of us. He tells us, you have more than enough. You're so worried about not having enough, but you have more than enough because you, you who I am calling to, you are more than enough. But even when I see the signs, even when they do become clear to me, even then my brain immediately whispers back to God the same things that the Gideon did, the voice that says, not yet. Not yet, God, not yet. I, I don't have enough yet. And it's in that. It's in that that even those people in the Bible, these, these people that we read about, even, even Gideon, heroes like Gideon, even they make occasional leaps of faith that I don't think they're entirely at ease with. And I like that. I like that because it reminds me that I can be nervous. It reminds me that I can be uncertain, and in the light of that, I can still be faithful. For when we trust in the God who saves, it doesn't mean that our feelings go away. It means that whatever we feel, what we do in light of those feelings is where we have the opportunity to be most faithful. Martin Luther King Jr. said, Faith is taking the first step even when you cannot see the whole staircase. And so Gideon, with his army of 300, when he took that first step in the wine press, I think even then, even then he was nervous. I can't imagine how nervous he was, but I do know that whatever he was feeling, he made the decision to take another step. He made the decision that he would trust in God's math more than he would trust in his own. Because at this point, he had a story behind him, a story of moments when he trusted. He trusted then, and he trusted then, and he trusted then. He kept looking for God's signs. Theologian Will Willimon says, when we make a moral decision in our lives, the work for that decision, it happens before the moment you make it. That we do the work of a moral decision in our past. Neuroscience backs this up. Studies show that in the moment of crucial snap decisions where you just have to jump in, you don't think your way to the conclusion in that moment. You're reacting. And you react in ways that are a result of decisions that you made yesterday and the day before and the month before and a year before, tiny moments and decisions and discussions that you have been making your entire life. So it takes habit and practice. Andrew Carnegie in 1904 commissioned something called the Hero Fund that has to date awarded over 10,000 medals the medal is given to this according to their description. Those who risk their lives to an extraordinary degree while saving or attempting to save the lives of others. One recipient is the, a construction worker by the name of Wesley James Autry. He received the award in 2008. A podcast called Radiolab spent some time trying to discern 
when people make heroic decisions, when they make moral decisions, what kind of crazy is that? What is the kind of thinking that results in the risk of jumping out to save someone else? We're going to listen to a clip from the podcast where they interview Mr. Autry. We'll see his image up there. When they interview him, they do so at the subway stop where he was those many years ago with his two daughters, then four and six years old. When a man, a stranger, suddenly has a seizure and falls down onto the tracks. Let's listen. So when they're standing there and this guy starts convulsing and then eventually falls off the platform onto the tracks right as a train is coming, his choice is pretty stark. In order to save this complete stranger, he's got to leave his daughters behind, potentially without a dad. I'm looking at him shaking and going into another seizure. For some strange reason, a voice out of nowhere said, don't worry about your own, don't worry about your daughters. You can do this. So he jumps, runs to the guy. Is he conscious? No, no. Tries to grab the guy's hand. And each time I grab this hand, we'll slip apart. And when he slip, I look up, the train is getting closer. I grab his hand again, we'll slip apart. The train is closer. 50 feet, 20 feet, 10 feet. And then it's right there. And all he can do is grab the guy, get him in a bear hug, and flatten his body against the guy as much as he can. First train car just grazed my caps. Oh my God. Train car went right over them. When the train came to a stop, four to five cars passed over us. I looked them in the eye, I said, excuse me, you seem to have a seizure or something. I don't know you, you don't know me. So I just kept talking to him until he came through. And he was like, well, where are we? I'm like, we're on the for train. He said, well, who are you? I said, I came down to save your life. So he kept asking me, are we dead, are we in heaven? I gave him a slight pinch on his arm. He's like, oh, just I see, you, you're very much alive. Wow. Have you, did you ever ask yourself at this point, like, what am I doing here? Well, I mean, he asked it, what am I doing here? Well, what about I you? My, I can hear the two ladies who had my daughter standing in, in between their legs. I can hear my daughter screaming. So when that train come to a stop, uh, I yelled up from underneath the train, excuse me, I'm the father, we're okay. I just want to let my daughters know that, I, that I'm okay because I know that they are worried about me. Everybody started clapping. Can I ask you a question? So it, the point at which you said you heard a voice yes. that said, I can do this. I can do this. What's, what, what is amazing to me is that it you was, left your daughters right here and dive after a guy you don't well, know. He was a stranger, total stranger, but you know what? The mission wasn't come completed. I was chose for that. You felt chose like you, you were chosen. I felt like I was the chosen one. Wow. But for a religious person, though, I would wonder, why me? Well, what you know what? Uh, maybe 20 years ago, I was supposed to be at a certain point. And then he explained to us exactly why he had jumped. He was the one guy who could. He said right before his feet left the platform, this one specific moment from his life flashed to mind. This thing that happened, you know, uh, I had a gun pulled to my temple, but you know, it was a misfire, so, you know. A it, gun was put to your head and yeah. missed, so you were almost dead for a oh, second I was or two. almost dead, you know. Oh, so you think you might have been spared for a purpose? I was spared for a reason. After that moment, he says, when the gun went click and he didn't die, he always wondered, why had God spared him that moment? Until he was on the platform and he saw the guy fall off. He says then he knew 
This is why. I can, I can do this. It was just, I can do this. I can do this. That voice, when that voice said that you're going to be okay, I knew everything was going to work out. What if we dared to think, I could do this? What if whatever God calls us to on a daily basis, that we meet that challenge, begin to form patterns and habits of decision-making so when a critical decision comes, we're ready. James Autry, a man who recognized, who saw it, who heard it, felt ready for it. He makes a snap decision. He doesn't weigh the pros and cons. He just jumps in that maybe he was saved for that moment. And Gideon, too that he begins as the least of the weakest family, and then he begins to look, he begins to see, he begins to do the hard work in himself to face the challenges that were laid before him. And in doing so, it's not God's presence that changed. It's not even the signs that God was putting out there that changed, but it was Gideon's ability to trust in what he was seeing. And as a result, then, to trust that instead of saying, not me, God, Not me, God. It must be for someone else that instead he would begin to say, God, if this is for me, then it's me. Are we any different? Are we any different than Gideon? Are we any different than James Autry? Because I hope that we are not. If we aren't, then it means that, that we too, we can learn to see the signs that God is putting there. It means that whoever we were, whoever we are, we can discover We can discover God to be closer in our lives than we know. We we can, in fact, be the very people God calls us to be. We can do that which God calls us to do. But we have to be convinced that it's us. We have to be convinced that God's math is better than our math. We have to see the signs. We, We have to take the leap. And we cannot get too hung up on our own calculations. Will you pray with me? God, you are here. You are here and you are calling to us. And God, for each of us, we know. We know what some of those things are that you call us to do. We know what it is that you call us to be. So help us trust your math. And for those, God, who are still looking God, give a sign that is is there for us, that we would see it correctly, that we would know it for what it is, and that we would respond to it in ways that you direct. For God, it is because of what your Son, Jesus Christ, did that we are saved. It is because of the actions of the Spirit that we are able to do good in this world. But we do have to choose to do it. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. Learn more about us at villagepres.org. And we invite you to join us again next week.